We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. The, uh, the year was 410 AD and something truly historic happened. Unprecedented. Alaric and the Goths from the north moved south and they attacked Rome and they sacked Rome, conquered Rome. Rome that for nearly a thousand years was like the center of the world, no longer. One author who, who, who went through this said this, just his experience of seeing his beloved Rome fall. He said, when Rome fell, the whole world perished. Now, that's an exaggeration, right? I mean, the whole world did not perish. But for him and for others who lived through it, it it certainly felt like it. And and when suffering happens, right, when when hardships come upon a people, a city, a nation, you begin to sort of ask those existential questions. You you begin to ask, why? Right? Why did this happen? Why did God allow Rome to fall? And so they begin to ask those sorts of questions. And instantly, they try to figure out who to blame. And interestingly enough, they began to blame Christians and Christianity. Now, this perfectly makes sense, okay? So so for a thousand years, you had Rome that they they worship all these sorts of gods. And then for almost a hundred years, there was a change that happened. If you know your history, you had Constantine, and then you had the Edict of Milan, and then Christianity kind of took its kind of the centerpiece of religion in the Roman Empire. And so many believed the gods, the Roman gods are mad, mad. They're, they're, they're angry, and they're, they're getting their revenge finally. And so the fall of Rome was Christianity's fault, and these various Roman gods were getting their revenge. And so in light of this, in light of these sort of conversations, one man, one pastor named Augustine wrote various essays to his church and other churches answering the question, was Christianity at fault for the fall of Rome and the fall of the Roman Empire? And so he wrote a book that we we really still read today. It's the book called The City of God. And in it, there's this, there's, I would commend it to you. It's, it's a great book, and there's all these theological truths, and he's talking about the nature of the gospel and religion. But, but over and over and over again, he's answering the simple question, the historical question, which is, Christianity is not at fault when an empire falls. And so he wrote that book to encourage the saints in Rome that when an empire falls, Christians can still have hope. Now, he wasn't the first to write about that theme. That's what Daniel 5 is all about. In Daniel chapter 5, an empire falls, and it can look like really bad news, terrifying news. And yet, Daniel 5 was written to encourage the saints, to encourage the people of God there in Babylon, that though empires fall, And though empires rise, there is hope for God's 
people. Every week I try to give you a big idea, and that basically is the big idea. It it should be behind me, and it's simply this. We'll work our way through it in two parts. No earthly kingdoms fall. There is hope for God's people. Let's read the first half of Daniel chapter 5 with me. Turn with me there to verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that he had taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives, and the concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third uh, third ruler in the kingdom. Then the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Then Queen The the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, like uh, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. We'll stop there. So in Daniel chapter 4, we have this amazing story of the humility of King Nebuchadnezzar when he goes literally mad, and then after... He raises his face, his countenance to heaven. He's humbled. He shows signs of repentance and begins to praise God. And he is then restored. Well, we begin in chapter 5 and roughly two decades have come and gone. And now we have this new king, Belshazzar. And he throws a feast, doesn't he? A huge feast, right? This is like the biggest frat party ever. I mean, look look, look at the invitations that are sent out. Verse 1. It says, a thousand are invited. I mean, this king isn't even selective. He he just invites like everyone. It's lavish. No expense is spared. And it's interesting because at this very moment, an army is encamped surrounding the capital city. In Babylon. So, so why are they partying? 
Like, why are they celebrating? Why are they feeling, like, good? This doesn't feel like a time to party, and yet here the king is inciting a great feast. Well, just think about it. The capital city had walls that surrounded it, and they were just short of 400 feet high. There's no way there any army could get over these huge walls. And then not only that, I mean, some armies, what they'll do is, um, historically speaking, they'll, they'll, they'll surround a, a city and then they'll choke off supplies and water. So you basically just starve uh, uh, people into submission. Well, the capital city had the Euphrates River running through it. So they had enough water to, 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 to feed their crops, their livestock. I mean, they have a great situation here. And so there they are, you know, staring at this foreign army on the hillside, going, they're going to give up eventually. They're going to go home. We can just kind of party like it's 1999. It was really 539, but you get the point. They're feeling secure. They're feeling good. And so the king, to kind of incite and encourage, you know, you know a response that everything's going to be okay, to, to boost morale, he throws a party. And at this party, we learn that the king, he gets a bit tipsy. He gets a lot tipsy. And he does something that he would never have done, I don't think, if he wasn't so inebriated. Do you see what he does? In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, when he, when he uh, the, the former king, when he sacked Israel, he took all of these sacred items, these holy items, and he brought them back as trophies. And now, this king says, bring them out. And so they're brought out. And you might think or might hope, okay, so they're being brought out so that they could look at them, admire these amazing sacred items that are attached to the worship of the God of Israel. But no, they're, they're, they're passed around to the kind of the who's who of the Met Gala of Babylon. And then they, they pour the finest Babylonian Merlot in these sacred vessels and they keep the party going. Can you imagine? I mean, just, just imagine if you somehow got a Rembrandt painting, and then you gave it to your child and said, here's some Crayola markers, color all over it. I mean, the desecration, the sacrilege. And we're meant to, to, to read these words and, and instantly stand back and go, shame on you. Something meant for, for worship, something meant for holiness is degraded. But it's even more shameful. Just look at it. You see, the king is making clear. He's sort of making a theological point that's going to be clear in verse 4. And that is that he is over the king of Israel. The king, Babylon, the, the, the Babylonian empire conquered Israel. And so he's making the sort of theological point that he is more powerful than the God of Israel. He's mocking God. And we we see a toast that he gives in verse 4. It says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So, so basically they're like, To prosperity! To, 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 to the God of comfort! 
And they start naming off all the Babylonian gods that gave them wealth and prosperity to the wine god, the moon god. They give all these toasts and you can just hear the uproar, the excitement. And it's bordering on funny if it's not so tragic because here they are mocking the living God while praising dead, speechless gods. And if you were to just stop there and you didn't know the inevitable outcome of this story, which I'm guessing many of you do, you would stop and think, is God, who is just so dishonored in this moment, is God going to come to his own honor? Is God going to avenge his own honor? And I love it because it just says immediately, right? With no time to spare, verse 5, something happens. And it's a crazy story. I mean, this is like a Halloween text, right? It's like a ghost text in one sense. All of a sudden you have this hand that comes and it begins to write on the wall. And and it's writing on the wall opposite a lampstand. And why opposite the lampstand? The the point is that the, the light is bearing on it so that everyone can see it, right? This is not in the imagination of the king. This is literally happening. A hand is writing something on the wall. And all we know about it at this point is the reaction. Verse 6. I love this description. The king's face turned pale. His thoughts were terrified. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. Have you ever seen someone truly afraid? Like, not like roller coaster scared, but like truly afraid. Like, just just the, the blood leaves your face. You begin to shake. One of my children had night terrors. If you've ever experienced them, these are utterly horrifying to watch. But it's screaming. There's just this just blank look out into the abyss. It's terrifying. And that's the description of all those who see this hand, particularly the king. But, it, but it's even more brutal when you just look at the text. That, 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 that phrase, his limbs give way, literally this is what it says. The knots of his loins were loosened. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> the, the king's a hilarious punchline, right? He's so terrified. He's so petrified that the king, in all his regality, and all his pomp and pastry, like he is just this great king, and yet at this moment, he's so terrified, he soils himself. How humiliating. Well, eventually the, the hand goes away, doesn't it? But, but in this place, now they just see words. And they're coded words, right? The king can't read them. And so we've seen this theme over and over and over again, right? The king calls in all the wise men, all the people that are supposed to interpret these sorts of things. But they're ignorant. The writing is on the wall, but they can't read the writing on the wall. And then just then, verse 10, a new character enters, the queen. Now, I don't think that this is the king's wife. And the reason why is because it says all the the wives, plural, and his concubines are actually at the feast. But this queen comes in. So, So I think this is the queen mother. And so she walks in. She's older, wiser, 
She's been through more things. And she knows stories. And so she says, O king, you might not know how to interpret this, and all of your your men who are on your payroll don't know how to interpret the writing on the wall, but I think I know someone who does. Daniel. And so she points to Daniel, and Daniel's about to come in and be the only one who can read the writing on the wall. So just for a moment, imagine the scene. Imagine this king who's throwing this lavish party and just he has layer on layer of humiliation. So he's humiliated at just how he responded to this, uh, this terrifying image with this handwriting on the wall. He, he's humiliated because all these people that he pays to be wise men can't do anything. And he's humiliated that he doesn't know what to do. And then his mom comes in and tells him, I know. I know what you need to do. The very, the very God that you desecrated, you need to find one of his worshipers, an Israelite, and he'll tell you what the writing on the wall is. The king's humiliated. Now, this whole idea of reading the writing on the wall, we, we use this a common. I mean, you could like Google this, and there's music and song after song and and movies talking about the writing on the wall, right? We use this as a, as a term for saying that, that there is an inevitable doom that's happening that, that hasn't kind of been written yet, as it were, but it's inevitable. Uh, we, we, we used it um, recently on Thursday. Um, I was watching at least a little bit of the Denver Broncos Colts football game. And it was tied going into... Uh, it was tied. The game's over. It's tied, so it's going into overtime. And I don't know if you watched the game, but fans, the Broncos fans, they just left. They left. I mean, the game's not over. The Broncos could have won, and yet they saw the writing on the wall, right? They knew there's no way we're going to win. And they left. And so here we have the writing on the wall. Doom is about to come on the kingdom and this king, but no one can Read it. I think that's the tragedy. I mean, sometimes we can read the writing on the wall. But the true tragedy is, often we can't. Spiritually speaking, we can't. We are all born blind by our sin. Or to kind of use the metaphor of Daniel chapter 5, we're all drunk with sin. Our hearts are inebriated. We're out of touch with spiritual reality. But there is hope. You see, the writing was on the wall for the king, but, but there is hope for us. You see, right before Jesus was crucified, he stood before another king of sorts. And this king is described very, very similar to the king of Babylon in Daniel 5. Pilate. And Pilate, he, he brings Jesus in right before Jesus is about to be crucified, and he asks Jesus' question. He says, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you? Here's Pilate saying, I have this power, this kingly power. I am mighty. And ironically, Pilate had no idea that the writing was already on the wall. 
Jesus responds, you have no power over me unless it has been given to you. Given to you from above. You see, God's plan to send his son to die for sinners, it was written on the wall from the foundations of, the, of all of time. The question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with the writing on the wall? There really is two options for us. Either we persist in drinking from the sort of libations of the heart, and then our fate is wrapped up in what we're soon going to see is the king of Babylon's fate. Or we put our faith in Jesus Christ, who himself drank the wrath of God to save sinners. And then your fate is wrapped up in King Jesus and you get life. This is a sad story. This this is one of those stories which are supposed to kind of shock and awe us to step back and think, what's my life about? Has my arrogance against God become so high, so lofty? Have I esteemed myself so much? Am I so out of touch with reality that I haven't even thought about God recently? This text in one sense is supposed to scare us straight. The question is, if you didn't know the end of the story, is this king going to be scared straight like King Nebuchadnezzar or is he going to double down? Well, let's just keep reading to find out. Verse 13, Daniel. Daniel enters the scene. And at this point, Daniel has to be, when you just kind of count up all the kings, Daniel has to be in his 80s. He he came to Babylon in kind of the first wave when he was young, so Daniel's in his 80s. Daniel's probably retired. He's probably playing some golf. He's forgotten. And yet, my guess is, I mean, Daniel's stepping back going, the, the days where I was ushered into kings, into the palace, are well over. The the days when God used me are all but done. Here's Daniel in his 80s. And I think this should encourage us, particularly those who who are more in the twilight of their lives, that God is no respecter of time. God uses who he uses. He just calls you to be faithful. And prophetically speaking, the most fruitful years in Daniel's lives are in his 80s. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? I mean, we started Daniel, and we have Daniel and his friends, and they're teenagers, and they're in in just sheer courage and boldness. They're defying the king as teenagers. Praise God for their faithfulness as teenagers. And so here's Daniel kind of bookending his life in his 80s, still faithful to God, still believing that God can use him. What if the most productive years of your lives were not in your 30s or 40s or 50s? What if they were in your 70s and 80s? They were for Daniel. Well, the king, after calling Daniel into kind of the the palace, into this kind of party, right? The king interrogates Daniel a bit. We we see that in verse 13. He says, "Are, are you one of the exiles from Judah? 
right? He, he needs to find out, uh, are you somehow connected to kind of the, the, the outrageous sacrilege, the, the desecration of your holy things? Are you, are you connected in some way? Well, the, the king then explains what, what he heard about Daniel, that he's wise, and then says, if you can interpret the writing on the wall, I'm going to do amazing things for you. I'm going to robe you with purple, give you a gold chain, make you third highest in the kingdom. This should should remind us of Joseph. Similar language. And I just love how how Daniel responds. Look there in verse 17. Starting in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that of a wild donkey. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and those who are your ways you have not honored. We'll stop there. Don't you love how Daniel responds, verse 17? Right? Daniel goes, King, you're Chanel, you're Louis Vuitton, you can keep them. I don't want them. All the money, all the prestige, all the power, I'm, I don't want a thing from you. But I'll, I'll interpret the writing on the wall, but I can't be bought. I love how Daniel just shoots straight. Isn't that what old age does? You're just freed up to shoot straight a little bit more. And Daniel does. He goes full tilt on the king. And he reminds the king what happened to his, his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4. He, he basically just tells the whole story and the point of the story of chapter 4, which is God, God brought King Nebuchadnezzar low, humiliated him, made him go mad in order that he might learn a lesson that God reigns over kings and kingdoms, that he makes low and he makes high. And he tells him this over and over again. And he says, but you've done nothing. You have learned nothing from this story. You've heard this story from a little kid. This story of, of a king becoming a beast had to be lore. I mean, it had been years since this happened, but Everyone had to know the story, especially a prince. And so he says, you knew this story. You knew what happened. You knew the point of the story, the moral of the story, and yet you did nothing. You are just like your father. 
like father, like son. Or to kind of use our language, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Can you imagine Daniel saying this to a king? Recently, I was reading Calvin and Hobbes, right? Sometimes they've got great theology in there. And there's a really hilarious scene in which Calvin is walking in the snow with Hobbes. And then he says, he looks at Hobbes and he goes, nothing I do is my fault. And then he says, my parents are dysfunctional. And then he just goes off and rattles, uh, you know, excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. And at the very end, Hobbes looks at Calvin and says, like kind of perplexed. And Calvin goes, I sure love the culture of victimhood. Daniel here stands right in the face of the king, points his finger at the king. The king here can't lean into victimhood. Daniel won't let it. Look look there at verse 22 through 23. If you were to get a calculator and add up all the times you and your comes up, 14 times, right? Daniel uses repetition like a machine gun. You, your, you, over and over and over again, proving you can't get out of this. This is by your hands. I don't care if you didn't get hugged enough. This is all your fault. You're responsible. Responsible, no less, to God himself. And then right at that moment, that's when Daniel begins to interpret the writing on the wall, right? Verse 24. Now, before we get to that, just to kind of frame this, this the, the writing on the wall, the, the words on the wall, the, the, the kind of symbolism has to do with weights and balances, which shouldn't be odd to us. Because often weights and balances have always been, throughout all of history and almost every civilization, those kind of images are connected to justice, aren't they? Have you ever seen Lady Justice? A statue or like a painting of Lady Justice, right? She holds a, a sword in her hand, uh, uh, scales in her other hand, and then she's blindfolded, right? You can, you can Google this. I think it's in the Supreme Court as well. And so the, the, the image is supposed to communicate something symbolically, right? That by the sword, she's going to enact uh, judgment. But by the scales, she's going to weigh the deeds of mankind. And then by her blindfold, she's supposed to be fair and impartial. And so the words on the wall, they very much explain from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. You see, this king is about to be weighed by God on the scale of heaven. And the question is, what's he going to be found? So, so Daniel reads the words, and then he interprets it, verse 26. Verse 26, this, this is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words, this king has been weighed and the king has been found morally, spiritually, ethically deficient. He didn't measure up to God's standard of righteousness and justice. And therefore, he's been found guilty. He is going to be judged. His days are numbered. The kingdom, the thing he probably loves more than anything, his beloved kingdom 
will be taken away from him. How's he going to respond to that message? You're going to die. Your kingdom's gone. How is he going to respond? Is he going to respond like Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4? I mean, chapter 4 and chapter 5 are intentionally placed together as contrasts. They're mirror, mirror images. Is this king going to be so humbled? Is his pride going to be humbled to the extent that he will turn his gaze towards heaven? I mean, the king in chapter 4 goes literally mad. The question is, who's crazier? Nebuchadnezzar or this king? Look, verse 29. Look at how he responds. This horrific judgment comes in verse 28. says, Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with with a chain of gold and put around his neck, and he proclaimed him um, that he should be third in the ruler of the kingdom. He just goes, great, thanks for the message. Here, I'm going to give it all to you. I mean, no sense of remorse. I mean, who's really out of touch with reality, Nebuchadnezzar or this guy? I mean, this guy is so inebriated, so spiritually drunk, that he cannot even see the writing on the wall. He doesn't even realize that his end is coming soon. Verse 30. That night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. In one last stroke of irony, we're reminded of the king's name one last time. Do you guys know what that king's name means? Bel is the name for the, the kind of the ultimate god of, of Babylon. And the, the rest of his name pretty much means protect the king. So, so you put it together, and his name means my god, the god of the Babylonians, will protect the king. But the Babylonian god didn't protect the king, did he? Because while, while the king had drunk himself to sleep, while he was in his bed, thinking that they were secure, Walls, no one could come up. 400 feet tall, there was no way a foreign army could attack them. They have the river Euphrates. Well, the very thing that brought them life, the stream of life, the Euphrates, it would be their downfall. We don't read it here, but historians tell us that actually what happened when this party was going on, the king... Darius, what he was doing? He was damming the river Euphrates. And when the water receded, they marched on the riverbed of that river right into that capital city and easily, almost without a fight, conquered it. I mean, I'm no military person, but brilliant, right? Great strategy. The king's days are over. His deeds have been found wanted. His kingdom is gone. And the real tragedy is, and it's not really even funny, he had the writing on the wall. He just didn't do anything with it. Now, for us, for the church, where's the hope in all of this? Well, I think the hope really does come in, in the last verse. The hope really is in the backdrop of this terrible judgment. The last verse of chapter 5 reads this way. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. 
Daniel 5 ends with the fall of one kingdom and the rise of another. You see, Daniel chapter 2 is being fulfilled in Daniel chapter 5. Do you remember that scene, scene if you were here? In Daniel chapter 2, there was that great statue, that vision, and Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. And it says then coming after him will be silver, a kingdom of silver. Well, here we have the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2. Here comes the kingdom of silver. This new kingdom. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. God raises up kingdoms, uses them for his purpose, and he brings down kingdoms. The writing was always on the wall. But here's the hope. Here's the hope for God's people. God's people were living in exile, living in captivity, and their world fell apart. But here's the hope. You see, the fall of that kingdom meant the rise of another kingdom. And God would use this next kingdom and this next king to bring the remnant out of captivity and bring them back to Israel. We read of this in 2 Chronicles and Ezra. In Chronicles, we read of this, that this next king, this king that's described uh, in verse 31, he writes an edict. And this is what he says. He says, he announces this edict. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you and your people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Right? This king, this new king that just conquered Babylon, gives God's people in captivity a blank check to go back, to go home, to rebuild their cities. God brought down, and now God is bringing God's people back. Jesus would talk in similar ways right before his death and resurrection. He would talk about the rising and falling of kingdoms, and he would encourage the people of God, to not lose heart. In Luke chapter 21, he said that nation will war against nation, kingdoms against kingdoms. But then he says, don't lose heart. I think particularly this week, we need this message. On Thursday, the president said, this is the closest to to nuclear disaster that we've been in 60 years. Like, I don't even have a compartment in my brain to compute nuclear Armageddon. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. And yet here is the amazing hope, which is God is over it all. And he's ushering in his better kingdom. This is why Augustine wrote the city of God. He wrote it because the empire, the Roman Empire was falling and he thought the world must be over. And Augustine said, no, there is a better kingdom than the cities of men. And it's the city of God. Put your hope in that city, the city of God. And realize that though kingdoms come, though they fall, that city is solid. Don't lose hope. Whatever comes around the bend, whatever kingdoms rise and fall, God is sovereign over them all. And he is ushering in his kingdom. Inevitably, he is doing so through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whatever king, whether evil or less evil, whether good or terrible, whether the kingdom has biblical principles or not, 
Regardless of the kingdom, there is a better kingdom to yearn for. It's God's kingdom. The city of God is at hand. Jesus came announcing it. The faithful will be restored as they were in Daniel 5. But that's just a picture. They were restored, but when they built the temple, as they built the cities and the walls, they wept because it just looked so small. And we live as exiles in this world as well, waiting the consummation of all things. And as we are, know that there is hope that God will not abandon us. Even in exile, God will not abandon us. He is ushering all things to his good. He is, after all, the God over all of history. Like we sing to our kids, he holds the whole world in his hands. Good will come. Take heart. Be encouraged. Be hopeful. God is on his throne. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we, we acknowledge and confess in so many ways that, that, that we all have various fears and worries, and yet, Lord, in light of your glory and grace, in light of your goodness and power. Lord, we pray that we would deepen our trust and resolve that whatever comes, whether that's cancer, whether that's unemployment, or whether that's blessing, we pray, Lord, that in prosperity or poverty, we pray, Lord, that we would deepen our trust in your goodness and grace and that you are bringing all things together for good, who are called according to your purpose. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.